0: Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments views and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch, I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, now I know some of you are going to think that I am obsessed with Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> and in some ways, I guess I am, but it really isn't so much about the um, pedophilia, which, of course, is horrendous, and, and that can leave scars. Uh, I mean, I have seen as a psychiatrist both uh, treating people who have been sexually abused and, of course, uh, testifying in cases of sexual abuse, the, the effects of this can last a lifetime. But that is not what I am obsessed with. I'm obsessed with the utter incompetence of the jail that he was in, uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center. I trained um, at NYU Bellevue. I did my psychiatry there and worked in their forensic unit. Uh, that's where I learned forensic psychiatry. You know, the Bellevue has the most amazing forensic unit. That's where everybody, <laughs> all the top criminals end up in Bellevue. And so it was an amazing place to learn and um, this whole this whole Keystone Cops thing <laughs> of what happened at the jail that Jeffrey Epstein was in. I mean, you know, I know some of you are thinking maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, he was a child molester, and so what difference does it make? And it's good that he's dead. And really, um, you know, it's it's anyone who dies by suicide or who. You know, death is not good for anybody, and, um, and uh, certainly he should have been protected by himself, and that's why I am obsessed. So, when I read an article, um, I mean, I know I, I did a previous show on Jeffrey Epstein, if you want to hear more. <laughs> when we're finished today, you can hear the earlier show, um, but today is going to be a little different because I came upon an article in Business Insider where um, it was called a psychiatrist, uh, let's see, Um, a psychiatrist weighs in in the risk of suicide in prison, but it was a psychiatrist who actually works at the same prison at which Jeffrey Epstein was a prisoner. So um, this was too juicy to (laughs) pass up. And so I'm calling today's show Behind the Bars, at Metropolitan Correctional Center, which may be known in the future as the Jeffrey Epstein Pavilion. That part was only kidding. Um, but it was the Metropolitan Correctional Center. And um, I thought, I certainly am interested, and I am sure that you are all interested, in hearing a little bit more than what you might hear in a soundbite or in the newspaper where, um, you know, it's kind of limited I wanted to give Dr. Cohn, Dr. Ziv Cohn, the opportunity to tell us what it is really like inside this prison or jail. Um, I mean, I certainly go into jails and prisons uh, a lot, have done from New York to Michigan to, uh, to California, but every, there are some similarities, and I've also treated patients who worked at these various prisons or different prisons. But, um, but every, every prison, there are some similarities and there are some things that are different. So I think this will be really interesting to hear from Dr. Cohn, who I will now introduce. He is a board-certified forensic psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Cornell Medical College in New York. He's the director of the forensic curriculum there, where he teaches forensic psychiatry to residents and fellows. Uh, he has extensive experience in civil and criminal qu- trials, cases. And also, um, he's currently writing a book on gun violence. And as I said earlier, he regularly examines inmates at Metropolitan Correctional Center and other jails and prisons. So, Dr. Cohen, welcome to the show.
2: Nice to be here.
1: Um, so, let's start with when you worked at the Metropolitan Correctional Center.
2: Sure. So, um, you know, I've never been employed by, by the jail, um, which is probably why I'm, you know, able to speak about it, uh, whereas other folks are not necessarily talking about it. I've never been employed by the jail. Uh, as a forensic psychiatrist, uh, no doubt uh, similar to you, um, I'm regularly retained by defense attorneys and by prosecutors, uh, or appointed by the court directly to evaluate inmates uh, at various facilities. And because I am based out of New York City, um, one of the common facilities that I go to is Manhattan Correctional Center. Um, for your viewers, um, you know it's worth uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, most jails are, as you as you know, but uh, I'll just sort of spell it out for all the listeners. Most sure. jails sure. Are, are are most jails are county jails. Uh, those are state facilities, um, and those are facilities where pretrial detainees are held. So, you, for the most part, it's individuals who have been arrested and are waiting trial. There are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's the population that makes up the jail. Manhattan Correctional Center is a jail, and so it meets the same kind of criteria, but it's not a county jail. It's a federal jail, and it's a federal jail that sits right in the Southern District of New York. That's the federal court district where the jail is located, and your listeners are probably, um, you know, when they follow cases in the news a lot of very prominent cases are actually tried out of, out of the Southern District of New York, um, whether it's terrorism cases uh, or financial fraud cases, um, and so a lot of those inmates end up being housed at MCC, and so it is a facility where various attorneys and experts of all stripes are frequently going in there to speak with inmates, and that's the context in which I go to MCC.
1: Okay, and when, and you're continuing to go there,
2: right? Sure, yeah, I I you know I regularly I mean, have cases that involve inmates there.
1: And when did you begin?
2: Uh I've been doing it since about 2012, I would say. Uh maybe a little bit earlier okay. than that, so for a good number okay. of years.
1: Okay. All right, just to get, you know, to to give a framework for this. Um Sure. Okay. Okay. So now, why don't you give first sort of an overview in general, before talking about Jeffrey Epstein in particular, um, just sort of a general, because because most of my listeners will not have ever been in a jail. Um, So just give an overview of what, uh, just now speaking specifically, though, about MCC, Metropolitan Correctional Center. Um, if you could just describe it, what it looks like, how many, how many, um, staff they, I mean, you know, I, I'm not expecting you to know exact numbers, but like general staff to inmates, um, just a general description of, of the, the jail.
2: Sure. Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, uh A jail like MCC is a a fairly large facility, so when you're you're thinking of jails, there's usually going to be a broad range, but for the most part, jails tend to be small. Now, in New York City, we have a very famous, very big jail, uh, which, which is called Rikers Island, and Rikers Island is an island on which there are, I think, 15 to 20 individual jails all on that island. So that's an enormous jail uh, with a population of several thousand. Um, so that's on one end of the spectrum. And then you can have small county lockups, uh, you know, which may have 10 uh, inmates uh, in rural areas. So... Uh MCC, Manhattan Correctional Center, sits somewhere between those extremes. It's a sort of an average or, or uh, above average um, jail, um, and it's in the southern tip of Manhattan. Um, when you go there, you uh, go to an area of Manhattan where there are a, a few different courthouses, um and the jail uh sits uh kind of behind and beneath the courthouses down a slope on the southern tip of Manhattan and uh, just like with any other jail uh you pass a couple checkpoints to get into the entrance uh area um and then typically uh in the entrance area you present your credentials to the guards they process you uh confirm that you've got you know you've got a reason to be there And then they give you uh, a key so that you can store your personal items because typically in jails you are not allowed to bring um, electronic devices um, or any items that are not directly related to your work. Um, Typically you store everything in the locker and uh, then you pass us a little security checkpoint similar to what you would do at the airport, uh, magnetic scanner, And then you typically would be escorted by a correctional officer to the location where you would meet with the inmate. Um, At Manhattan Correctional Center, um, uh, I've always met with inmates at uh, a large uh, room. There's a large room. It it sort of looks like a big um, cafeteria, um, almost like a school cafeteria. Um, and it has a bunch of tables in the middle, but around the periphery there are cubicles uh, with glass doors, and um, that's typically where you would meet with the inmate. That's where the attorneys meet with their inmates and confer with the inmates, and that's also typically where psychiatrists would meet with the inmate. Um, so that's, that's what that looks like.
1: Okay. And um, I take it that chances are that you weren't in, uh, that you you didn't happen to pass by uh, Jeffrey Epstein. You weren't in one of these rooms at the same time that he was?
2: No, I did not uh, see Jeffrey Epstein, and I also... Uh, important for me to uh, be, be very clear that I've never examined Jeffrey Epstein and I've had no involvement uh-huh. in his and I've had no involvement in his case. If I did have involvement in his case, I certainly would not be free to speak about it.
1: Sure, and he probably also wouldn't be dead today, since I think he would have done a better <laughs> job than the um, doctoral level psychologist um, who did. Uh, Examine well. We don't even know that he, how much he, they examined it. But well, let's talk about that before we get to the specifics. So, in your um, in your work, uh, you know, for the defense or the prosecution, going into these jails. I mean, let's say specifically uh, MCC. Did you ever have uh, occasion to meet the? Um, like you know, what their structure is for the psychiatry psychology departments there, and did you ever meet any of the therapists?
2: I've met therapists at uh, at federal facilities. Um, uh, uh, another big federal jail in New York is MDC, uh, which is Metropolitan Detention Center, which I believe is is larger than MCC. That's in Brooklyn. Um, I've met clinicians there, and I've met clinicians at federal facilities out of state. Uh, for example, in Texas, there's a big federal facility where federal inmates who are not competent to stand trial uh, will be transferred. Um, and I've so I've certainly conferred in quite a bit of detail with uh, mental health staff at federal agencies. But at MCC, in particular, um, you know, I typically review the records. On these inmates. Mm. So if an in, if an inmate is at MCC and I've been retained to examine the inmate for whatever reason, and we can talk about you know the, the reasons why that someone might want to retain a forensic psychiatrist to examine an inmate at MCC, but if I've been retained to examine an inmate, then I'm always going to ask the attorney to uh, obtain the mental health records from the jail because I'm going to want to know. What's the treatment, if any, that the inmate is receiving in the jail? What are the observations that the team is making in the jail? Is the inmate on any psychiatric medication? Has the inmate been suicidal? Um, Has the inmate exhibited any strange behavior or made unusual comments? Um, Has the inmate been agitated or violent in any way? So these are all kinds of things that you would want to know, and you certainly would want to have the full uh, record from the mental health team in the jail. So I've, um, frequently reviewed those records and, uh, for MCC at least that's where my familiarity comes from in terms of understanding, Mm. um, what they do.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, that's a, a good point. That's right. So you would have, uh, and one can tell a lot from reading records in terms of the competence of the people who are writing them. Um, so what is your, I mean, I know from, uh, from just my experiences in jails, prisons, uh, Metropolitan State Hospital, um, you know, very, th- typically, um, and, and apparently it's been reported for MCC that there are funding issues. So, um, not only funding issues, but there are, uh, staff retention issues. There's an incredibly high turnover in many jails and prisons because because it's very hard work, because the prisoners, especially uh, these days, have become more animalistic, more, um, you know, <laughs> less inhibited from expressing themselves, uh, meeting the, the, the guards, for example by uh, urinating on them through the bars or throwing feces at them or standing within sight, masturbating, doing whatever they can to get the guards angry, which, yes, you would think uh, <laughs> that would be counterproductive, but, uh, you know, that's not how they're thinking in terms of future consequences. Um, so, how, <laughs> so how bad is it in, in uh, MCC? Hey,
2: yeah. Well, I think that um, you know MCC uh, is not uh, particularly different from other jails. So, um, you know, when we're talking about, for example, the psychiatric standard of care, um, you know, jails um, have more in common than they have that's different between them. And really, whether it's a county jail or a federal jail. Um, certainly within the United States, we're we're, going to encounter a lot of the same issues. And so I think that a lot of the things that are brought up in the Jeffrey Epstein case, from what's been reported, obviously I'm not involved in the case, but from what's been reported, I think a lot of those issues are just cut across jails in general and mental health issues in jail, um, mm-hmm. I think that's also something that's important. Is that you know my my thoughts about this are um, uh, flow from my own experiences at MCC, but they but they really primarily flow from just what the standard of care is in terms of c- taking care of an inmate uh,
0: yes, in a jail yes. and what are
2: the risks What are the risk factors um, you know in jails? But but to answer a specific question about MCC, um, you know. And I've, you know, d- discussed this with others. My my personal experience of MCC um, in the inmates that I've evaluated, um, a little bit different from some of the media reports that I've seen, um, I cannot say that inmates that I've oh, okay. evaluated...
1: Let me, let, wait, let, let me stop you there because we have to take a break and that will be leaving everyone on a cliffhanger. So Great. <laughs> So we'll stop Great. right here. <laughs> We'll be right back after the break. My guest is Dr. Ziv Cohen, a forensic psychiatrist, and you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today about uh, going, actually, behind the bars at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, also called the Jeffrey Epstein Pavilion. That is my own private sick joke. Um, with Dr. Ziv Cohn, who is a forensic psychiatrist and the director of forensic psychiatry at Cornell Medical College. And before the break, we were talking about um, the psychiatry, psychology, mental health uh, program at in jails and prisons and particularly at MCC. So, why don't we continue with that?
2: Sure. Uh, thank you. So, well, I think, you know, right at the commercial break I was uh, talking a little bit about the conditions at the jail and what I was just going to say is that, you know, a little bit in contradiction to what's been reported in the media um, you know, uh, the media has reported that you know the conditions are very uh, are unsanitary um, and that uh, there are mice and feces and, and, and you, things like that that the uh, inmates have to deal with. Um, and I'm sure that that's true, um, and I've you know heard that on occasion. but, but for the most part, um, I can't say that inmates have complained to me about, that sort of thing um, and I've met with a lot of inmates at MCC and I've not had them you know say to me hey I can't be in here it's just uh, you know there are mice everywhere and things like that and often I'm meeting with inmates in a setting where you know they're feeling quite free uh, and even encouraged to tell me about their experience in the jail so um, you know I can't tell you you know with 100% certainty what the conditions are in every part of the jail, but I can just say that as someone who goes to MCC to evaluate inmates, that's not something that I hear a lot of. Um, So I think that's just worth keeping in mind. Um, But in terms of I think there were some
1: pictures, though. There were some black and white pictures of the jail that looked pretty, um, you know, like pretty medieval. In fact, medieval was a word that was used... um, (laughs) In well, at least a report. Well, I mean, jails are not the Hilton, you know. Um,
2: exactly, exactly. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying that it's, you know, uh, five hundred thread count on your um, sheets <laughs> and uh, you know, really good mattress or anything like that. It's a jail. It's a primitive. To, you know circumstances to be in, and it's not uh, perhaps uh, it's not going to be typically as clean as you would want, and, and so forth. But, and I'm sure that some of this is is absolutely the case that there may be mice there. There are, there are a lot of rodents in New York City in general. There's probably no. I was
1: no... Say, I in New York. There are roaches in New York, even in fancy Upper East Side apartments. So correct, it's in the very jail. hard to there keep like them out. The People, people
2: who people may not be that familiar with New York, you know, we don't have alleys in New York, so the trash bags are on the sidewalk, and that attracts a lot of cockroaches and rodents. and so. But at any rate, I, I'm not contesting that there well, are probably get... substandard uh, conditions at times in parts of the jail. I'm just saying that, okay, you know, but super... let's, go ahead. But let's
1: go talk ahead. about the, let's get to the, um, talking about substandard, I want to get to the the mental health program.
2: Great. So the mental health program. So, um, you know, my understanding at MCC, based on my experience, um, is that they have uh, a mental health staff. Um, they're going to have uh, psychologists uh, primarily that work there. Uh, there is access to a psychiatrist, but there's less access to a psychiatrist than, you know, than to than to the psychologists or. Uh, even like a master's level, uh, can, you know, mental health professional. Uh, so, for your listeners, uh, a psychologist is a doctoral level mental health professional. Whereas, we also ha- there are also master's level mental health professionals. Um, and so, I think that you know, at MCC, you're going to, for the most part, see a mix of mas- masters and doctoral level mental health professionals and then there will be some access to a psychiatrist for inmates who need it. Uh, So for the most part, when you're interviewing, uh, oh, when you're reviewing the records of an inmate, you're going to see notes from the psychology staff. That's really what you're going to see for the most part.
1: Well, so how much access to a psychiatrist? I mean, is there more than one? Is there a psychiatrist on staff, a full-time psychiatrist? Or what is this access?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't have, you know, that level of detail in terms of their staffing, but I would say that um, you know, if a, if a patient, if an inmate needs to see a psychiatrist, you know, it would be typically, you know, once a month that they would be able to see the psychiatrist. If they were very acute, they might be able to see the psychiatrist more frequently for a short period of time, but for the most part time with a psychiatrist is going to be rationed because there's simply not a lot of psychiatric staff. There, there may be, you know, one or two psychiatrists available at any given time.
1: Uh huh. Okay. So now, um, in the patients that you, the inmates, patients who you have been um, dealing with, meeting with at MCC, were there any who had um, were suicidal at any time?
2: Sure. Absolutely.
1: And so, what was that's the a protocol? common like what? Yes.
2: Yeah. Right, so so whether for MCC or for any other jail, you know, um uh, an inmate being suicidal is a common occurrence and uh you know, uh, jails um are well aware that this is a serious issue because suicide rates are high in jails. Um and typically uh one of the reasons for that is that Again, a jail is where a person goes after they've been arrested and they're awaiting trial. And so it's a pretty dramatic change in circumstances for a, for a person. if they're you know free in society and they've never been in jail, and now all of a sudden, if they're on serious charges and they're confined, um, that can put a tremendous amount of psychological pressure on a person. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners, some of your listeners are aware that, um, mentally ill people in the United States are uh, have high incarceration rates and a high percentage of inmates in jails all across the country uh, have serious and persistent mental illness. So when you put people like that in a jail, they're also likely to develop suicidal ideation because they don't quite have the coping mechanisms. So... Um, Suicidal ideation in jail is really just a bread and butter problem that not only the mental health staff are going to be facing, but the correctional officers. I should also say that, um, and I don't mean this in any kind of cynical way, but just in kind of a statement of fact, is that, you know, inmates will also sometimes be motivated to manipulate staff and they may not want to have the roommate that they have, or they may not want to be in the particular unit that they're on. And one way that inmates can try to exert pressure on staff is by saying that they're suicidal. So one of the things that always has to be taken into account is whether the person is malingering, which is trying to manipulate by using feigned, feigned mental illness. So all these things are, need to be kept in mind when you're, when you're working with inmates.
1: Okay, and so let's let's talk about this doctoral level psychologist, Um sure. who sure. Um, and what goes into making such a decision. I mean, first of all, a doctoral level psychologist is a psychologist who has a PhD or a PsyD and a doctorate, and but does not is not yet licensed. So, right. so you know, grant, granted. Being a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any kind of mental health professional working in a prison is not necessarily a very desirable um, job. Uh, some people enjoy it because you know it's certainly challenging and so on, but you know it's not. Um, there are a lot of. Uh, it can be very stressful, um, and Absolutely. so and so it's not so easy for these various uh, jails and prisons to get mental health professionals to work for them. Plus, uh, although the money is actually better in jails and prisons than for most other jobs, like uh, compared to working at a clinic, for example, Um, mental health professionals are paid better in jails and prisons, but uh, because there is so much difficulty getting them to work there. Um, But as it turns out, there is usually... um, uh, there usually isn't enough staff. There aren't enough mental health professionals in a typical jail or prison, and and those that there are um, are, are have a very high caseload. So um, so I guess that is why they had. And plus, you would pay less. Actually, that's another issue. You would um, the the prison the, the jail would pay less someone who was only a doctoral-level psychologist instead of a licensed psychologist. So all these factors went into it, but clearly, and as you stated in this article, um, first of all, when it comes to suicide, deciding to terminate someone's suicide watch, it should be a psychiatrist who has a lot more training than a psychologist, uh, certainly, one, certainly a psychologist who's not licensed, um, and... And so it should be a a psychiatrist who makes the ultimate decision to take someone off suicide watch, which is a very risky decision. Um, And someone who is experienced in making these decisions, you know, in dealing with suicidal patients um, should be making this decision. So the fact that either there wasn't someone, I don't know if you know this, but the fact that either there wasn't someone above him or her, this doctoral level psychologist who decided to take Jeffrey Weinstein off Suicide Watch, or they just didn't go to a supervisor to ask that. But clearly, um, we know now that they made a big mistake. Do you know anything about what... um, Do you know who this person was? Do you know... uh, Would you (laughs) say... (laughs) Are they in... uh, Have they fled to uh, Zambia by now?
2: Well, okay. Uh, So, I I mean, I've got a few... I've got a few thoughts on this. Um, okay. So, Okay, so, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for um, mental health professionals who work in jails and prisons. There's a huge need for, for us in those facilities. Um, and as you said, it's not really glorious work, um, but it's much-needed work. It's really sort of on the front lines of the mental health Christ in America, so I got a lot of respect for the people who do it. Um, yes. I do think that there, are, in a lot of jails, what we what we just know from published data is that there is uh, there are systemic problems in terms of mental health care in in jail. And I think you really hit the nail on the head that a lot of it has to do with resources. Um, if you if you're gonna have if we're going to have a situation where we're going to have 20 or 30 percent or even more of the jail population in any given jail having some kind of a mental health issue, then all of a sudden you're looking at a facility that needs staffing that would be comparable to staffing at a psychiatric hospital. And most jails don't have anywhere near that kind of staffing. So it does create a real burden on the clinicians there, and frankly, it creates a burden on the correctional officers because they are not mental health professionals and they end up having to deal with things that are really should be deal- dealt with by mental health professionals. In fact, in a lot of jails, the COs have to have mandatory mental health training once a year um, where they're yeah. trying to give them some tools for how to deal with the inmates, but you know having one day a year or whatever level of training they're you know they're getting um is is really typically not enough so so th- those are some j- just general background points i don't know the psychologist who made the decision uh with Jeffrey Epstein but i also don't you know i'm not overly focused on her i think kind of the systemic issues are more
1: ah it's um, her important it's a yeah <laughs> okay it's but, a but 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 I, <laughs> Is it a him or a her? I
2: don't know if it's a him or a her. But but, but but I think that... Um, no, I, I really don't know if it's a him or a her, but I thought the article said it was a she. But at any, at any rate, um, I think that I... Here, here's what I would say. I would say that um, if someone is um, like Jeffrey Epstein, had a uh, a lot of risk factors for suicide in jail... Then you're going to have to approach them with a lot of caution. And I think that, um, you know, we can easily um, point out to some serious risk factors that he had uh, for committing suicide in jail. Um, you know, that included the fact that he's a prominent guy, that he had a very dramatic change in his circumstances um, from being, you know, wealthy and powerful to all of a sudden being powerless and in jail. Um, The fact that he was a white male over the age of 40, which is a risk factor for suicide in jail, Um, and then also the fact that he was there on sex offender charges, which is a known risk factor for suicide in jail. So those kinds of things would make you extra cautious about him. Of course, there are a lot of people who meet those criteria, and you're not going to put all the people who meet those criteria on suicide watch, but what's appears to have been the case with him, because, again, I'm not involved in the case, but from the media reports, there was a a serious suicide attempt that he made a few weeks before he actually completed suicide. And so once you have someone with those risk factors who also has made a serious or suspected serious suicide attempt, then I think, you know, clearly that person has to be supervised very, very closely. And so... He was on, uh, my understanding is that he was on constant observation, which is what's otherwise known as suicide watch, which means that he's put in a situation where he's being observed 24-7. Now, that it can vary how the person is observed, whether they're observed by a video camera or by a person standing outside their cell, but be that as it may, the idea is that there are eyeballs on the person 24-7 and also that they're in a cell where they don't have the means of harming them themselves because those kinds of things have been removed from the cell, such as sheets or bedding, and also their clothing is modified, so they have a kind of clothing that they can't use to harm themselves. Um, so he was under that level of observation, and it sounds like that makes sense, um, the question is, if he, when he was removed from that level of observation, why was he dropped down all the way down to the level of being checked just once every thirty minutes? I think that that's yes. where I think we can start to wonder because if you're going to take someone off of suicide watch, you've got options, uh, and one oh, wait, option wait.
1: would be let, 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 wait, wait, <laughs> Dr. Kong, let me just stop you here because we do have to make another uh, take another break. But when right. we come back, maybe we can we can talk some about um, some of the things that they didn't do given these risk factors. Uh, certainly, right. a, a recent, a very recent suicide attempt makes you you know you, you'd have to do a step down. You wouldn't, uh, as you were just starting to say, you wouldn't go from um, a better suicide watch to uh, to every 30 minutes. That's that's hardly anything. A lot you can do. You can commit suicide in 30 minutes. I mean, that's nothing. And why did he right. have a bunk bed that he could hang his sheep from? You don't have bunk beds and you don't have sheep when, you're, when there's a suspicion that you might commit suicide. So we can talk about some of these things when we come back. My guest is Dr. Ziv Cohn. We're talking today, going behind the bars at the Metropolitan uh, Correctional Center. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where I can continue, (laughs) but this time with Dr. Ziv Cohn, who actually has uh, worked there as an expert witness, uh, forensic psychiatrist, examining inmates at the Manhattan uh, Metropolitan Correction Center, um, and where Jeffrey Epstein was, and where um, incompetence uh, caused his death, apparently. I mean, yes. You know, there are still investigations going on and there are still some people, I, I'm sure, who think that um, it might have been murder. But that has somewhat been pretty well put to rest by um, the autopsy and, and so on. But, um, but what's more, what hasn't been put to rest and what I, why I'm still uh, wanting to talk about this is because it reflects this general level of incompetence Um, it's at least there and, and certainly, yes, as we've been talking about, you know, there, it's, uh, there are a lot of inmates for, for not a lot of mental health professionals. It's a hard job and all of that. But that doesn't really excuse any one person there, any one mental health professional from being incompetent and the, and the institution from not making sure that, um, they only, higher competent people or that people are are supervised um, at a higher level. Again, this doctoral level psychologist means that that person wasn't um, licensed. And for a, an unlicensed psychologist to be making the decision to take somebody off suicide watch is just, is just um, absolutely incompetent, absolutely um, not right. It's, there's no excuse for that. So... I mean, the only, you know, the excuse I'm sure they're going to give when they're going to be sued, um, which probably will be happening, uh, is that, you know, they don't have enough money to pay for people at a higher level or whatever. Um, because once you get licensed, you are, you know, you're generally paid higher. You expect to be paid higher than when you're just in still, it's still essentially a training position because you are supposed to be supervised. Even though it's doctoral level, you are still supposed to be supervised until you have your license. Like, duh. <laughs> I mean, really. So anyhow, let's talk about, you know, what some of the things are that this person uh, missed and what should be looked for, particularly, we're talking, of course, um, particularly in prisons and, and jails, not necessarily, um, I mean, these are special circumstances, but as I was saying before the break, um, and as Dr. Cohen was saying, you don't go from having, being on, I mean, do you know, though, what, what the suicide watch consisted of before he was taken off? Like how high a level was he? I mean, typically or, or ideally he, um, inmates are on television when they are under suicide watch. They are literally watched 24-7. Do you know what he was on, what kind of suicide watch he was on? when before he was taken off the first time?
2: So, uh, you know, as I was saying, I have had no direct involvement with his case. Um, So I don't know definitively. I just know that it's been reported that he was on suicide watch and typically what that would mean in a jail. uh, And I would strongly believe that it's what it means in this case, because I mean there's no two meanings for suicide watch. Um, it would mean that he was under constant observation. but whether but, that is through a camera or by having a correctional officer outside his cell, um, that will vary from jail to jail. and even within a jail, it can vary from unit to unit. Um, uh, but that's what yeah, one would so expect or it could that you've
1: or. or... They could have been thinking that every 15 minutes was suicide. I mean, that is sometimes considered suicide watch also. That's why I was asking, because we don't really know. I haven't seen it reported anywhere um, exactly. Well, what well, well, I would argue,
2: I mean, I think your comment is really appreciated. I would argue that, um, you know, every 15-minute checks is not suicide watch and that, if any jail defines it that way, that that's really substandard care. Um, yes. suicide watch. Because really, you know, we we determine the standard of care as mental health professionals and 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 mental health professionals understand that. Um, you know, if you have someone on suicide watch, that means constant observation. Um, And and really, anything less than constant observation is not suicide watch. That's just a high level of checks. So you can have someone on every, like, as you said, on every 15-minute checks, but that's not suicide watch because someone can kill themselves in those 15 minutes that they're not being observed.
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But but, but I would assume...
2: Yeah, but I would assume well, that in his case, he he was under constant observation, but I don't know that for a fact.
1: Yeah, and we can't really assume anything at this point, because there have already been so many things that have been found to be either not true, or or they're not telling. I mean, like, for example, the cue, the every 30-minute check that he was supposed to be on, as it turns out, the guards um, didn't check on him every 30 minutes, and it had been like three hours. Um, but, right, you know, I think, I think you're...
2: I think you're right that we can't, we, can't, um, we can't know until we get the full facts. Um, uh, right. And I think that that, that raises another issue. So, so I think that there are kind of two issues um, here. One, one is, you know, what's the psychiatric standard of care? So if you think, you know, if someone's had a major suicide attempt or they're suicidal, what's the level of care that would be appropriate in terms of how we think of this as psychiatrists. And the jail is going to be bound by that because they're required to meet the physical and and psychiatric needs of their inmates. Um, So that's one level of the psychiatric care. The other level is um, the compliance of jail personnel with jail procedures, which is a little bit of a separate issue. So, in other words, if, uh, well, so one question is, was it appropriate psychiatrically to have him on every 30 minute checks? And I think there are serious questions that that was not appropriate. But then another level, another question is, which is a little bit separate, is, um, you know, the jail's um, not fulfilling its own mandate uh, so that the, you know, the correctional guards are not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and that raises uh, sort of separate legal issues, I think, um, yeah. which the Supreme Court has talked about, which, you know, is uh, uh, Estelle v. Gamble is a Supreme Court case where um, uh, the court held that, you know, uh, if a jail is de- if a jail or a correctional facility is deliberately indifferent to the well-being of an inmate, then they would have liability. And I think there's a question of whether this would constitute deliberate indifference.
1: Well, I just want to bring up, two, we're kind of coming to the end here, and there are two more points. I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours, um, and because it is really interesting, particularly, you know, as two of us forensic psychiatrists looking at this, um, one thing that I have thought of is that, you know, it has been reported, and we don't really know how true it is um, yet, but it has been reported that his attorneys had asked for him to be off suicide watch. Now, I don't know if that is 100% true, but let's just say, I mean, you would think, I mean, that would have been a big mistake, but but they're not not psychiatrists, but in any case, let's just say that it is true. I could see where a doctoral-level psychologist being approached by these high-level attorneys, if that happened... Um, would feel under the pressure, especially if they obviously haven't had much experience with determining whether someone should be on suicide watch or not, I, I could see where um, they could easily be influenced by that and not use whatever judgment they have and and take them on to, off suicide watch because they, they're being asked. I mean, you know, we see it all the time. Like I see it, you know, in my office is in Beverly Hills, so there's this whole issue of celebrities and they're special patients too, you know, and what do you do, your, use your better judgment, um, or do you want to keep, there are a lot of psychiatrists who don't use their better judgment and uh, give them all kinds of pills and do whatever so that they can keep them, so that they can brag about having so-and-so as their patient, which, of course, they're not supposed to do also. Um, so I could see that, and also, you know, I wonder why or if uh, his, his attorneys had hired somebody like you or I, expert witnesses, since he was awaiting uh, trial expert witnesses who would have put other eyes and that's what they should have done hired an expert witness who would be seeing him since the access to psychiatrists is so little, at least if he had his own psychiatrist coming in and seeing him. And certainly they should have done that after the first suicide attempt, if not before, what do you think of that?
2: I mean, I think you raise a lot of great points. Um, so the first one about you know VIP patients, uh, VIP patients for a variety of reasons exert pressure on professionals to make exceptions, and uh, you know there's been a lot written about how that very often results in VIP patients actually receiving inferior care as compared right. to just the ordinary just the ordinary person who goes in anonymously right. into a into a hospital. Um, I think that, you know, it's possible the attorneys exerted pressure here um, on directly on the mental health staff. I don't know whether that happened or not. But it's also just possible that, um, you know, Epstein, by all accounts, is a very charismatic guy. And he would have been somewhat of an unusual inmate at MCC. And he may have just convinced the psychologist. You know, he may have said, I'm yes. not suicidal. And he may have just been very convincing um, yes. And that may have, and and you know having celebrity uh, and that and, 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 you know in power he, he, he may have simply convinced the psychologist. So um, I do think that you raise a good point that it's you know it's um, we have to be very cautious as mental health professionals when we when we're in this arena um, and we should always consult with colleagues you know in difficult cases.
1: Yes, the other absolutely. point that you raised. Well, the wait, other point wait, there that you raised was whether
2: whether his attorneys <laughs> should have hired a psychiatrist. An expert wait. You know, yes. Of course, I'm, I'm going to sound biased, but <clears throat> of course, I think that would have been a good idea. Um, I think so. That a lot of the times, attorneys, uh, you know, attorneys are not mental health professionals. They're they're from 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 a medical perspective, they're lay people and so they're not always going to have that awareness. Um, Some attorneys are just phenomenally aware and and just amazing with that, but other attorneys have less experience. Um, But the other thing is that sometimes attorneys are wary of having their clients talk to a psychiatrist, Uh, and particularly in this case where you have a potential sex offender, the attorney may have worried um, of all kinds of jeopardy um, that could occur um, from their client talking to a psychiatrist.
1: Okay. Well, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. We're kind of uh, we do need to stop now. Um, I agree with that. Um, but let's be—I think you will agree with me—that let's be a lesson to attorneys that if they have inmates, whatever they are accused of, that um, certainly if they express any suicidal ideations or other kinds of psychological problems, it is better to have, bring in an expert witness, forensic psychiatrist, because. Uh, at least that will keep your client alive. <laughs> you will keep you will be able to continue with the case. Well, Dr. Zinko, thank, so <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. And um, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.